Hi, I'm Robin Black, and this is Robin Thinks. Um, today, we're, I'm continuing on with love and respect, and I want to talk about, I want to expand on something I talked about in the first episode, which is that in all of these books, there is, there's always going to be some kernel of truth or grain of truth, okay? And what happens is we, in, we instinctively recognize this truth. Like, uh, uh, what I like to say is within all, each of us, there is what I call a tuning fork of truth. There's something that resonates us within us. We, we, we recognize something as being true, okay? What happens, however, is that what religion does is religion takes that kernel of truth and it wraps it in the rules of men, okay? So to me personally, what deconstruction is, is deconstruction is... Um, unwrapping the rules of men. It's figuring out what is the kernel of truth and being able to extract that kernel of truth, but we unwrap it from the rules of men. And the, those rules of men are almost always designed to give men power, okay? And I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you an example today of a kernel of truth and how it is wrapped in the rules of men and then how we go about extracting the kernel of truth. And then from there, we're going to talk about what is the kernel of truth that is in love and respect that we can actually extract and hold on to because there is actually a valuable principle in this book, but it's, it's wrapped in so much of Emerson Egrick's own ego basically his own desire for things to be the way he wants them to be, that this kernel of truth kind of gets lost. Um, I've mentioned before, and if you're not familiar, um, Sh Sheila Gregoire ha is on kind of, I'm going to call it a crusade, but that, that makes it sound negative and I don't think it is negative. I think she's on a very positive and healthy crusade to um, either you know, get this book unpublished or, uh, you know, kind of get to get people to see the very unhealthy aspects of this book. Um, but there is actually a healthy kernel in it. And so what happened is she's um, kind of gone back and forth with Focus on the Family because at one point in time, Focus on the Family was uh, sort of strongly recommending this book. They were uh, giving it to people when they when someone would make a donation to Focus on the Family. So they were supporting it really strongly. And so um, Sheila Gregoire, among other people, she's not alone. There are a lot of people that have recognized that there's some really destructive and damaging, damaging teachings in this book. And so they've been kind of working hard to get it uh, kind of deplatformed, I guess. Um, so one of the things that Focus on the Family has said is that this book has helped a lot of people, Okay. And that's not false or wrong. I think there are people that have been able to extract this kernel of truth and apply it to their lives and it's helped them. The problem is, I think the people that are really capable of extracting that small kernel of truth that's actually healthful, healthy and actually valuable are pretty few and far between. Um, I think what's happening instead is he is promoting uh, an ideal that appeals very strongly to men. And so particularly a lot of men of power. 
And so what I want to talk about today is how do we find the kernel of truth? How do we recognize the religious rules that are being wrapped around that kernel of truth? And then how do we extract the kernel from the religious rules? And that is what I call deconstruction. Um, and, and to me, that's the value of deconstruction is you extract the valuable principle from all of the man-made rules. You throw away the man-made rules and you keep the important and valuable principle. So I think that also kind of indicates why um, the men that make these man-made rules and the men that um, reinforce these man-made rules are exactly the people that don't want anyone to deconstruct. They don't want you to throw away the man-made rules. Um, so, so I'm going to give you a perfect example of a kernel of truth that is wrapped in a man-made rule or a, a series of man-made rules. And then and I'm going to show you how damaging the man-made rules are. Okay. Okay. So we're going to talk about the fourth commandment, which is found in Deuteronomy 5, which is um, the commandment about honoring the Sabbath. Now, if you've grown up in Christian churches, you probably... Uh, the interpretation of this commandment that you probably heard is remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, right? The problem is what you probably also heard about the Sabbath is that the Sabbath is the day that we were supposed to go to church. We're, uh, the way that Christian churches teach um, honoring the Sabbath means you honor the Sabbath by going to church. The Bible doesn't actually say anything about going to church on, first of all, the Sabbath, and second of all, on Sunday. And I'm going to talk uh, in a few minutes about how it is that we, in America, we came to go to church on Sunday, uh, which actually has nothing whatsoever to do with the Sabbath, okay? But here's what the Bible says about the Sabbath. It says, But the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. This includes you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, your oxen and donkeys and other livestock, and any foreigners living among you. All your male and female servants must rest as you do. Remember that you were once slaves in Egypt, but the Lord your God brought you out with his strong hand and powerful arm. That is why the Lord your God has commanded you to rest on the Sabbath day. Okay, so this is what God said. Um, work six days and then rest, okay? And what man did is man immediately went out and they made what are called uh, Mishnah. They made 39 Mishnah. So they created 39 different categories of what it meant to work, okay? So so what they're saying is um, if if rest is the opposite of work, then we have to decide what it means to work, right? And that's where these 39 Mishnah came from. Okay, so the first 11 Mishnah had to do with all of the different steps in preparing bread, which includes sowing, plowing, reaping, binding sheaves, threshing, winnowing, selecting, grinding, sifting, kneading, and baking, okay? And then the next 12 applied to um, making clothing, okay? And these uh, these were like all the steps from the shearing of sheep to the actual sewing of cloth. 
And it also applied to sort of like all of the um, kind of side aspects of that. So the other things that were outlawed on the Sabbath are writing, building, uh, like creating and putting out fires and carrying things from one location to the other. Okay. So already I think you can kind of understand like the difference between what did God say? God said work six days then rest. That's all God said. He said just just work for six days and then take a day off. Take a day of rest. And in in my personal uh, opinion this was God's gift to us. Okay. God was saying um, you don't need to work seven days a week. You don't need to work your hands to the bone. Okay. Just work. Do do all of your work in six days and then Take a day off. Put your feet up. Just rest. Okay. So then man has to come in and man has to decide what does it mean to rest. Okay. Here's the problem. Uh, we all have different activities that we find restful. There are people, uh, I had a roommate, she loved to bake. Baking was like her, I don't know, like her love language. And so what she wanted to do on her day off was she would just bake and bake and bake and bake because she found baking to be restful. I live in Colorado. And so there are, um, you know, kind of horrible people in Colorado that love to get up before the sun has even come out, drive up into the mountains and hike somewhere. Like they go on hikes before the sun is even up. And so they go onto like some high peak somewhere and they, um, you know, watch the sun come up. And that is healing to them and that is restful to them. I find it insanity personally, but that's the whole point. We're all very different. I want to get up late and sit in my jammies and enjoy my coffee. That's what I find to be restful. But I also, I enjoy the the morning process of grinding my beans and, um, you know, preparing my coffee in the morning. It's part of like my sort of ritual. A lot of people don't want to do that. You know, they have like their little Keurig cup and they're good to go. Now, here's the thing about God. I believe that God knows the nature of man. God knows exactly what man is going to do, okay? So what I want you to notice about this commandment is he said, it's not just you, like he's, you know, he's speaking to men because uh, culturally, uh, you know, men held all the power and all the authority and women basically did whatever men told them to, okay? So it's not that... Uh, God is purposely excluding women. It's that uh, God knows that men are uh, are going to treat this as if God is speaking to them and them alone. Okay. So notice what God said. He didn't just say, men, you need to take a day off. Okay. Men would be fine with that. But what do you think is going to happen? Men are going to go, well, I need to take a day off. But those women, they don't do anything anyway. They don't need to take a day off. Why do they need to take a day off? And, you know, chores still have to get done. So yes, I should take a day off. I deserve a day off. But my slaves shouldn't take a day off because they have to actually, you know, keep my farm running or keep things going. So what did God say? God said, no, everyone, everyone needs to take a day off. And again, this isn't something that, God was demanding that man do for God. This is God's gift to man, to all men, to humans, to the human race. 
He's, this is why he's saying everyone needs to take a day. I am giving a day off to everyone, not just to men and not just to like slave owners or bosses. Um, I'm giving a day off to all of the employees. Everyone needs to take a day. And, and it's not so much everyone needs to take a day off because it benefits me somehow. It's that all the bosses need to give their employees a day off, a day of rest. Everyone gets a day of rest. Every single week, everyone gets one full day that is their day to do whatever they want to do with it. That is your day. I personally believe that was God's intention. So look at what he said. He said, this includes you, your sons, and daughters. God purposefully included women. He said, your male and female servants, uh, your oxen and donkeys and other livestock and, and any foreigners living among you. Um, you have to pay attention to that because what happens today, if you go to Israel today, um, there's something that they call Shabbat Goy. Okay, so the Goyim are anyone that are not Jews. Okay, it would be appropriate to say the Goyim are foreigners living in your land. So um, these rabbi that deal with uh, Shabbat law have decided that the spirit of the law is you can't, you know, create fire or put out fire. And so since now we have lights, uh, devout Jews in Israel are not allowed to turn on light switches on the Sabbath. They're not allowed to like flip a light switch. They're also not allowed to drive, okay? So what they do instead is they have the goyim come in and do all these things for them. So they're literally violating the spirit of Sabbath law. But this is exactly what man does, is man takes the law and bends it and twists it for his own, so that he can seem very righteous. So then you get into the New Testament and Jesus was constantly getting in trouble with the religious leaders because Jesus was constantly breaking man's laws because they were not God's laws. They were man's laws. Uh, in Mark 2, 23 through 17, it says, one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? God never said, don't pick grain on the Sabbath. God never said, don't sow on the Sabbath. Don't bake on the Sabbath. God never said, don't do these things on the Sabbath. He said, work six days, take a day off. That's my gift to you. Just rest, do whatever you find restful. But man couldn't deal with that. Man had to come in and, and create 39 different categories of things you cannot do on the Sabbath. Those did not come from God. Okay, and let's talk about what else did not come from God. Um, if you are a Christian in America, you have probably heard that uh, the command to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy means to go to church, right? The way in America that we're taught uh, to remember the Sabbath <laughs> is to go to church. Yet uh, there's nothing in that verse that says anything about going to church. In fact, um, Jesus was Jewish. And so the way that 
that Jews to this very day, the way they um, honor the Sabbath, the way they recognize the Sabbath, the Sabbath is from sundown on Friday, like what we would call Friday, to sundown on Saturday. Okay, so Saturday was their last day of the week. So they worked six days, uh, Sunday through Friday, and then they took a day off. And I'm not positive about this. I'm not exactly like a Hebrew scholar. I believe the reason that they um, honor the Sabbath from sundown to sundown is that, you know, you have to remember this is an agricultural um, community, basically. And when you live on a farm and when you have animals to tend to, there are certain things that you absolutely positively have to do every day. And so... Because you have, you know, animals and livestock, things that need to be tended to. And so I believe the reason that they honor the Sabbath from sundown to sundown is uh, if you've ever noticed, like when the sun starts to go down, it, it takes like about 45 minutes to an hour before it actually gets dark. And so I believe the purpose of this was that you could, you would take a full kind of 24 hour period uh, that was, that was, you know, a time of rest. And yet you would still have at least a small amount of time each day that you could still accomplish those daily chores that kind of had to get done no matter what. Uh, I'm not 100% positive about that. So uh, don't go quoting me. Um, The point is, however, that what started to happen in the first century is Jews, the followers of Jesus who were Jewish, they would honor the Sabbath from um, sundown to sundown. And then they began getting together kind of organically on the first day of the week, which is what we now call Sunday. And they would pray and praise and worship. So that was something that actually just sort of started happening organically in the first century. Nobody commanded it. Nobody told anybody that they had to do it. It had absolutely nothing to do with the Sabbath. But this is how we, in the 21st century, this is how we came to go to church on Sunday is because uh, in the first century, Sunday was the first day of the week. So uh, it would be like us kind of getting together, like if, if we actually honored the Sabbath on Sunday, if we actually set Sunday aside as a day of rest, And then we began to get together like on Monday evening or the first day of the week to just pray and worship and celebrate. Um, That would be the equivalent of what they were doing in the first century. That's why we go to church on Sunday. Going to church has nothing to do with the Sabbath. They are two completely, totally different things. Nowhere does God command us. First of all, nowhere does God command us to go to church. But second of all, going to church has nothing to do with honoring the Sabbath. And in fact, for a lot of people, for moms, for uh, introverts, um, going to church can actually be not so much like a stressful experience, but uh, a lot of work, basically, especially if you have young children, you know, trying to get kids into clothes and get them in the car. And I mean, it's just, it's a lot of work. And so the question is, um, are we truly and genuinely taking a Sabbath? Are we taking a full, complete, entire day in which we do nothing but rest? And, and the way I personally interpret that is, do we, are we taking a full, entire day in which we do nothing that we do not want to do? The Sabbath is intended to be God's gift 
to you. So I think God already knew in advance exactly, you know, how men were going to try and twist and manipulate this law in the first place, which is why he was so specific. He's identifying this isn't just for men. This is for the women. This is for the slaves. This is for the foreigners. This is for everyone. This is my gift to everyone. It's not a gift that I'm giving to men and then men in turn make everyone else work on that day. So this is the difference between sort of like the kernel of truth and then how men wrap their own agenda around this kernel of truth. Um, Going back to the passage in Mark, Jesus said to the Pharisees, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It's not a contest. It's never meant to be a contest. Who can be the holiest? Who can be the most righteous by doing the least on the Sabbath. It is, it is meant to be a gift that God gave to man, but then man had to take it and turn it into some kind of contest with, with hundreds of different rules about what everyone could and couldn't do. So what does all this have to do with love and respect? Um, I want to read a paragraph. We still haven't even gotten out of chapter one yet because there's already so much to dissect in chapter one. So I want to read this section in chapter one and then we're going to talk about it. Um, The wife is the one who asks, does my husband love me as much as I love him? She knows she loves him, but she wonders at times if he loves her nearly as much. So when he comes across as unloving, she typically reacts in a negative way. In her opinion, he needs to change into a more sensitive and caring man. Unfortunately, A wife's usual approach is to complain and criticize in order to motivate her husband to become more loving. This usually proves about as successful as trying to sell brass knuckles to Mother Teresa. On the other hand, a husband does not commonly ask, does my wife love me as much as I love her? Why not? Because he is assured of her love. I often ask husbands, does your wife love you? They reply, yes, of course. But then I ask, does she like you? And the answer usually comes back, nope. Okay, that's what we want to talk about. Here's the kernel of truth. If you go on the internet and you Google, is it better to be liked or respected? You will get thousands of hits because this is an age old question. And then what we have to break down here is there's this tendency to believe that because we all speak English, Words mean exactly the same thing to all of us, and they really don't. So when we're talking about love and respect, what we also need to talk about is what is the difference between being loved and being liked? Because the Bible commands us to love one another, but love is an action. Love is something that you do. It doesn't command us to like each other. It just says to love each other. So in other words, there is a certain way that we are supposed to treat each other that has nothing to do with how we feel about that person. So like is basically a feeling and love is an action. But unfortunately, in many cases, we use those two synonymously. But it's very telling that he he says here, he talks to his men that he counsels and he says, does your wife love you? Yes, of course. Does she like you? No. Okay. Which should tell us right there 
that in their minds, there is a difference between being loved and being liked. And technically there is a difference, but, but we have to actually talk about what is that difference and what does it mean? Okay. The same thing is also true with the word respect. Um, as I talked about last week in Ephesians 5.33, um, the word that has been translated as respect in Ephesians 5.33 comes from the root word phobos, which is where we get phobia or fear. Okay. In every other instance in the New Testament, that word phobos has been translated as fear. And yet in this particular verse, it's translated as respect. So this is another thing that we need to talk about is what is the difference between being feared and being respected? When we're talking about specific words, it's very important to identify what do you mean when you use that word? I'll give you a perfect example of this. Uh, I was in a traveling theater company for 10 years. And so we traveled all over the country. And one of the things that I learned in that theater company is that words mean very different things to people in different regions of the country. Um, a simple example of this is, is we know that uh, some areas of the country say soda, others say pop. Um, if you're in Texas, it's a Coke, period. They'll be like, you want a Coke? And you say, yeah. And they'll say, what kind? And then you say, oh, Dr. Pepper or whatever kind of Coke you want. Um, there's places they call it soda dope or dope. Um, so we have like one object and it's called a number of different things throughout the country. So this is one of the things that we have to understand and be aware of is that words do not mean the same thing to different people. Uh, I, I traveled with a person who, uh, relayed this story to me. He was staying, I think it was in Missouri. It was somewhere in, in like the Midwest and he was staying with some hosts and the, the, the woman was cooking and she said, Hey, could you go down to the cellar and get me a jar of sauce? And he's like, sure. Or he, I think she just said, get some sauce. And he's like, sure. So he goes down to their cellar and he, there's, there's like rows and rows and rows of jars. And he's looking for sauce. He's looking for like red sauce or marinara sauce or, uh, some type of sauce. And he doesn't see any sauce. And so he goes back up and he's like, uh, I can't find any sauce. And she looks at him like he's crazy. And she's like, there's entire shelves of sauce down there. He's like, okay, I must've just looked in the wrong place. So he goes downstairs and he's looking, looking, looking. There's like jars of fruit everywhere and he can't find any sauce. So he goes back up and he's like, I, I just, I can't find it. And she, like she's sort of looking at him like he's from another planet and she takes him down the stairs and she stands him in front of these um, rows and rows and rows of jarred fruit and says, it's right here. So the problem is what she calls sauce, uh, we would call canned fruit or jarred fruit. So the problem is they're both speaking English, but they're not speaking the same language they have a completely different understanding of what certain words mean. This happens a lot. And this is one of the, the root causes of a lot of our communication issues and our misunderstandings is we just automatically assume that whatever a word means to us, it means the exact same thing to other people and it doesn't. Okay, so let's talk about this word love. Uh, Emerson Egrick's uh, 
premise is that women need love uh, or even worse, women desire love and men need respect. Uh, in one of the earlier episodes, I love that somebody pointed out that even on the cover, uh, it says the, the love she most desires, the respect he desperately needs. So what uh, hers is just a want, like she wants to be loved. She desperately wants to be loved, but he needs to be respected. And so like so many relationship books written by men, they're highly, highly, highly skewed towards a man's needs rather than a woman's needs, okay? But let's talk about this word love. So let's say you go, uh, let's say when the ladies go shopping, right? And uh, your girlfriend comes out and she's got this great dress on. What do you say? Oh, I love it. I love it, right? You love her dress. You look beautiful. I love it. And then we go, we go car shopping and we get a new car. And what do we say? Oh, I love it. It's beautiful. Oh my gosh, I love it. It's got leather seats and it's got a huge backup camera and uh, an entertainment center for the kids. I love it, right? And what do we say about our children? I love you. I love my kids, okay? So we love a dress, we love a car, and we love our children, so do you think maybe it's a little problematic that we use this same word to define three completely entirely different things? Um, a couple of years, in 2020, I got in a car accident and totaled my car. Um, and it, it sucked. You know, I, I had a little bit of, you know, trauma from the accident. I had to deal with tow trucks and rental cars. And it, it was, you know, kind of traumatic. It was kind of chaotic. Um, and then they, they told me, well, we're totaling out your car. Okay. I didn't hold a funeral for my car. I didn't grieve the loss of my car. I went out, I got a new car. I liked the new car even better than the old car. I was able to actually get a brand spanking new car. So I got, so I was, I replaced the car immediately. I got a car that was actually better than the old car. I didn't grieve my old car. I didn't mourn my old car. Okay. What happens when you're, if a child dies, Parents will, will mourn the loss of a child, in most cases, for the rest of their life. The trauma and the grief of losing a child can rip marriages apart and it can destroy families. That's how intense the grief of losing a child is. And yet, we use the exact same word to define our feelings for our child as we do for our car. Okay, so this is what I'm talking about is when you use these sort of catch-all words, these all-purpose words, what are we really talking about? So when you drill down into these words and you use much more accurate words like dignity and honor and compassion and kindness, okay, who doesn't want to be treated with dignity and with honor and with compassion and with kindness. See, this is the problem with saying men need this and women need this. No, we as human beings have a deep desire to be treated in certain ways by other people. And quite frankly, it doesn't matter how they feel about us. It doesn't matter if they like us or not. 
it is actually important to always strive to treat your spouse, your children, your family, your coworkers with dignity and with honor and with compassion and with kindness. So when you actually start to use um, some more appropriate synonyms for what does it mean to love? What does it mean to respect? Then you start to understand and recognize this isn't a male-female thing. This is a human thing. It's not even a, 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 a marriage thing or a parent-child thing. Every one of our relationships will thrive when we begin to treat the people we are in relationship with with dignity and compassion and kindness and courtesy. All of those things, yes, you can sort of sum them all up in these very simple words like love and respect, but you know, part of the problem with the word respect is once again, uh, in many people's minds, respect is very closely tied to fear. And I don't think that it is healthy for your relationships to try and instill fear in your partner, fear of you in your partner or in your children. So last week I talked about how Emerson Egricks came to all these conclusions and then he went out and he found scientific research to support it, okay? So I'm going to post a link to a podcast episode by Sheila Gregoire and her daughter Rebecca. When Emerson Egrick says that he found scientific research to support his conclusion, he actually found a single study that has an enormous number of issues with it, which uh, Sheila and Rebecca talk about in their podcast. And then they also talk about how um, they reproduced this study. They came to the conclusion that about 65 to 75% of men would rather be respected than loved. And about 65 to 75% of women would rather be respected than love. Usually what you desire is the thing that you don't have. So in other words, if you ask people, do you feel like you are respected? If they answer yes, and then you say, do you think it's better to be liked or respected? My guess is they would probably say liked. Because people who are very well liked are probably well liked because they are people pleasers and they actually probably sort of resent that in themselves, that drive that they have to please people. And in many cases, when we like people, we don't necessarily respect them a lot. And, and conversely, many of the people that we actually respect, we don't particularly like a whole lot. There are people that we, you know, when we have a project that we want to get done or we need someone to, to a team leader, we look to those people, but we don't, they're not people that we necessarily want to go have a beer with afterwards, okay? Conversely, there's people that uh, we, we love hanging out with, we love spending time with, but when it comes to putting them in a position of authority or giving them some kind of authority in our life, we're kind of hesitant to do that. We don't think they'll really um, perform very well. So again, this is a hypothesis, but I would hypothesize that people that already feel respected um, would value being liked. They want to be liked. They know that they're respected, but they don't necessarily feel that they're very well liked and they may want to be liked more versus people who are, are well liked 
uh, might want to be respected more. Um, I want to go back and read this paragraph from Emerson Egrick's book when he says, the wife is the one who asks, does my husband love me as much as I love him? She knows she loves him, but she wonders at times if he loves her nearly as much. So when he comes across as unloving, she typically reacts in a negative way. In her opinion, he needs to change into a more sensitive and caring man. Okay, let's talk about that a minute. What does that mean? When we're talking about love, we're talking about compassion, like sensitivity and compassion, right? But going back to this word respect that has its root in the word fear. So essentially, when you talk about the man's role as one of needing to be respected by his wife and children, all too often there is a root of fear. So what you're essentially teaching men is your wife and children should fear you. So consciously or unconsciously, I believe you have millions of Christian men trying to live up to sort of this unspoken standard, which is my wife and children should fear me. Okay. And then right here from Emerson Egrick's own book, what is he saying that the problem that women have with this, uh, does he love me? And, and why does a woman question whether or not a man loves her or not? Well, probably because he's very aggressive with her. He's very commanding and demanding with her, right? He's not kind. He's not gentle. He's not sensitive. None of these things. These are, these are qualities that we've decided are feminine qualities. And so if you treat your wife with grace and kindness and compassion and dignity, then you're, then you're being effeminate. Then she's turning you into a woman. This is what our religious culture teaches. And then we can't figure out why our marriages are suffering as a result. Okay. So there's certainly, uh, again, there is an element of truth to this idea, but it has nothing to do with our innate tendencies. It has everything to do with how men and boys are socialized in our culture. Uh, last week, I talked about uh, John and Julie Gottman um, at the Gottman Institute and how they are widely regarded as some of the nation's uh, foremost experts on uh, marriage and relationships. And one of the reasons for that is because they have something called the, I think they call it the Love Lab, but it's a place where they conduct relational experiments so that they have hard data to back up their, you know, hypotheses. So one of the, the I guess, like the teachings that they're pretty famous for is they call it the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. If these four elements are present in your relationship, there is a, a very high likelihood that, that you're headed for divorce. And those four horsemen are criticism, contempt, defensiveness, and stonewalling. Okay. And the one I want to deal with here is contempt. Because having contempt for someone is having a lack of respect. So this is from John and Julie Gottman. But one of the things that I think you'll notice from their research is it doesn't matter who's showing the contempt. If a man shows contempt for a woman or if a woman shows contempt for a, a man and 
This would also be present in uh, same-sex relationships. So once again, the principles of relationship are the principles of relationship. The, the gender involved does not matter. One of the things that I find really interesting is there is a business book by Jim Collins and he his kind of his I think his probably most famous book is called Good to Great but he but he wrote another book that's called Built to Last and he talked about the very specific traits or qualities that are built into companies sort of the foundation that companies are built on that managed to last through many decades and through numerous leaders and um, all kinds of, you know, ups and downs, economic hardships, et cetera, et cetera. And as I'm reading this book, one of the things that I found very interesting is that if you were to read this book and if you were to um, take all those principles and apply them to building a marriage, you would build a marriage that lasts because relationships are relationships are relationships. And so one of the things that I would personally would, would recommend to women that are in um, heterosexual relationships is don't read relationship books, read business books, read leadership books, because the principles of relationship are the principles of relationship. And we are way too much of a Disney culture, which is you, you meet someone, you fall in love and what happens? You live happily ever after. There's no sense of we need to actually work on this. We need to invest in this. You build a relationship the exact same way you build a company. And as we can see from, you know, numerous spectacular fails, there are right and wrong ways to build a company the same way there are right and wrong ways to build a relationship. So again, this idea of love and respect is and who needs what and um, you know, what does that mean? What does respect mean? Does respect mean fear or does respect mean, um, I notice and I recognize that you are very wise in how you approach your decision-making. I recognize and understand that when you make decisions, you do your best to try and, um, put the needs of others ahead of your own, or at least make them equal to your own. Okay. When it, when a man makes decisions in that vein, that makes it much easier to respect him. So unfortunately, Emerson Egrick's principle or his, you know, what he considers to be a command from Paul is that it doesn't matter what a man does. It doesn't matter how he acts. Uh, it, it's a wife's responsibility or duty to respect him. And that is some basically complete bull. Uh, I'm going to, once again, I'm going to post the link to Sheila Gregoire's podcast episode. And I strongly recommend that you listen to that. She has some really good things to say, not just about this book, but about the scientific study and, um, kind of, you know, scientific studies in general, which you always have to be really careful of. Anytime someone quotes the Bible or quotes a scientific study, anytime someone, you know, uses some type of, um, backing for their own like opinions beliefs or arguments you always have to be really careful to to do some research into those before you just accept them as as legitimately backing up whatever they're saying 
Okay. So again, I'm going to leave the um, link to Sheila Gregoire's episode. She's done some great work on this book. I highly recommend um, if this is a book that has been damaging to you, I highly recommend you um, look into her uh, research as well. And um, I'm going to wrap it up for there. Um, next week, I'm going to be continuing on with Love and Respect. And um, if this podcast has been in any way helpful to you, please um, like it, leave a comment, um, a star rating on iTunes. If you can subscribe on iTunes, that would be phenomenal. I think there's just, there's so many people that have been relationally damaged by so many of these teachings. And I just, I, I want this to be a resource. I hope this is healing to some people. I hope this is helpful to some people. And um, anything you can do to help me get the word out, that would be phenomenal. Thank you so much. And I will see you next week.